Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Long River podcast. I'm Graham Rhodes, and I'm glad you could join me for these conversations on business and investing. Just a reminder before we begin that nothing discussed here today is investment advice and shouldn't be taken as such. With that said, please sit back and enjoy the show. I'm delighted to be speaking today with my friend Magnus Andersen, who most of you probably know by his Twitter handle, at Lou Mannheim. Magnus hails from Sweden and after a career in business, resigned a few years ago to focus full-time on his investments. He's one of the most thoughtful investors I know, understands his companies better than anyone else, and has a great time doing it. In this conversation, we'll cover Magnus's background and journey as an investor, his insight into the power of digital businesses, and his research methods using Swedish gambling services provider Evolution to illustrate. So Magnus, thank you very much and welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Why don't we begin with a quick introduction about yourself? Can you tell me a little bit about your career and what brought you into investing? Yeah, it's a, it's a long story, but I'll try to keep it short. I was interested in business and also in investment from a very early age. I was 10 years old when I convinced my parents that I should be allowed to buy some government bonds that would double in five years. So more than 14% interest rates and no risk. And I liked that very much. But that was in the beginning of the 80s and things were very different compared to now. But I bought my first shares in the late 80s and that was a period of great change in Sweden in fact because we had had a very very strong welfare state a very very high taxation and things were beginning to change in the 80s there was a government program that would make it much better or much easier for people to own stocks outright because earlier on this had been something that basically only uh, yeah rich people and institutions were doing that like in other countries and now all of a sudden you could buy for a certain amount every month and it was very beneficial tax-wise. So lots and lots of people started doing this and I was listening to my parents and their their friends talking about this. And I got interested in the stock market there when I was about 16 years old. And it was also interesting because all of a sudden Sweden was the, the country in the world and I think was this position with the highest percentage of uh, people owning stocks not like yeah, bonds and funds and things like that, but real ownership of stocks. But that was an early interest of mine. Then I went to university and studied business in Uppsala. And uh, I didn't have too much time to worry about the stock market. But later on in the beginning, uh, I think it was 2001, 2002, I started to get interested again. This was the period when the biggest Swedish company, Ericsson, had massive problems because of overspending and bad forecasting about the growth of the mobile market and so on. So it was a very big thing in Sweden that Ericsson would perhaps go bankrupt. And to put that in perspective, I think Ericsson was like half of the weight of the OMXS30 index in Stockholm, the index over the 30 most traded stocks. And I think it was around 50% of that. So it was it was a very big thing. And I bought stocks at a very low level. Unfortunately, it just continued to go down. So I got a little lesson in the benefits of sitting still when you have a good idea. Because after I had sold, I think the stock tripled in just a few months because of the owners putting in more money into the company. But I got more and more interested back then. And yeah, now I've been investing for about 20 years, and especially in the last 10 years more actively. And in the last five years as a more or less full-time occupation of mine. That's really cool. So... Magnus, I noticed that you began writing a blog sometime in the mid-2000s, maybe beginning about 15 years ago. And one of the companies that you were highlighting then going into the global financial crisis was Swedbank. Why don't you tell me a little bit about that investment? Yes, Swedbank was also an interesting case because basically we have four big banks in Sweden and they have 
yeah, something like a, <laughs> a quarter of the market. Not really, but there are, there are small, small banks as well. But they are very big. And they had run into lots of trouble in the early 90s, where a couple of them had to be saved by the government. And for this reason, they were a bit more, how should I put it, they took it a little bit easier when it came to lending out money. But that was basically in Sweden. And you, you could say they had learned a lesson a little bit, but they also had lots of issues because they had expanded into our neighboring countries because they are much smaller than Sweden and they wanted to have growth. So they went basically into the Baltics with full speed and Swedbank in particular. So then came the financial crisis and all of a sudden they had lots and lots of bad debts. They even had to start their own little company in Latvia to sell off all those cars that in the Baltics had bought from borrowed money and SUVs and Porsches and everything. So lots of people thought they would go under or be saved by the government, but for the shareholders that would be more or less the same thing. And at the same time, they had their Swedish business, which was very safe with lots and lots of private citizens uh, having their mortgage in the Swedbank. And we didn't all have the they had in uh, I mean, Spain and Iceland and England and so on because of the things that happened, I think, in the 90s, because that was a very, very sound business, a very safe business. So basically, my case there was that with the help of the shareholders, the bank was very, very likely to survive. And if it survived, it was like this one or zero game that if they, I mean, of course, you would lose all the money if they didn't survive. But if they survived, which was far more than 50% chance, the stock would 10 double at least from the levels it was in. So I made a bet there and it paid out very nicely in the following years. And I got very interested in bank stocks back then. But yeah, with the passing of the years, banks didn't really feel all that interesting any longer. There were lots and lots of new regulation and so on. So it wasn't that good to own banks. I had to look otherwise on in other directions. Well, that's a good point at which to to segue into what seems to be your interest at the moment, which is digital companies. Can you tell me a little bit about that journey, please? Yeah, it, it was a long journey, really, because as it happens a couple of years after this sweat bank or the financial crisis, I got interested in Apple because I had bought an iPhone and I also bought the iPad when it came. And, of course, I'd always loved Apple products since the early 90s when I bought my first Mac computer, a black and white uh, thing to write my essays when I was at the university. And I, I'd really liked the company. And I was so surprised that it just traded at, I don't know, like a PE 11, 12, 13. I was very surprised when I started looking into it. And of course, Apple is only partly a digital company, but that was my first venture into the digital sphere so to speak. And then I was writing lots and lots of things on my blog about Apple. I was, I mean, I got to be a little bit like Mr. Apple in Sweden and people started reading <laughs> reading my blog because they were also interested in Apple. And of course, that turned out very nicely. I mean, the company got to be, in hindsight, of course, you can say, oh, this was only natural. But I mean, Back in 2011, 12, 13, Apple was very much questioned and lots and lots of people in the market thought that the iPhone would be a one-hit wonder and so on. But that was very nice. And I also started getting interested in American stocks. I bought Starbucks when they had some problems in 2012. And then later on, I got into Netflix, which is, of course, a very digital company. And yeah. Since then, I have been very interested in digital companies as a whole. I think it's underappreciated, although lots of these companies are highly valued. I think it's underappreciated. The switch over to digital companies, or a digital economy, I should say, how much it influences the profitability and the growth prospects and those kinds of things for the companies that succeed, of course. I mean, not all. <laughs> We've seen that a lot in Sweden. Lots and lots of digital companies have floundered. But I mean, uh, digital companies that get to dominance in the market have enormous potential for profitability. 
for a very long time. And I think I've been writing a lot about this in the last few years. And sometimes it seems that lots of people don't really appreciate this. And in Sweden, of course, we have very big companies that are part of, should I say, the, the old economy here with uh, H&M and uh, IKEA and SKF and Volvo and so on. But what's happened in Sweden in the last four or five years is basically what happened in America a few years earlier, that the digital companies are the ones that are growing and are growing most profitably. And they are taking a bigger and bigger share of the market just like in America. So it's it's a very interesting field to invest in, I think. Did you feel like you had to let go of any long-held assumptions when you started looking at Apple and Netflix? Was it hard for you? I mean, Buffett's famously said he he couldn't invest in tech, and a lot of people have found it hard to make that transition. Did you feel any of the same difficulty? <laughs> yeah, and then Buffett did, uh, did make the tr- transition. <laughs> eventually a bit at least uh, no I, I don't think it was that difficult because it was very obvious to me that this was quite different i mean you, you have to let go of some of the assumptions and things you learn in business school about competition and the competitors always catching up and things like that but once you see i mean i think when looking at cases I, i'm not i'm not the numbers guy at all i'm not good with numbers and i i don't i think numbers have, have their place in any analysis but really you you have to understand the company and i noticed and this was very much the reason i started this blog was that i got in contact because this was before financial twitter and things like that and I wanted to get in contact with other investors. And lots of people were complaining and uh, criticizing about Apple. And uh, basically, I felt that they were just looking at the numbers. They were having their assumptions about competition. And they didn't really understand the product and the company. When we started looking into the company, you started reading about the company, you started listening to interviews and you started deep diving into not not very much so much the financials but into the soul of the company so to speak and also using the products every day you could see which was also what Warren Buffett realized that he saw all his grandchildren and their friends uh, having their Mac computers and iPads and most of all the iPhones and he, he understood that they weren't very likely to switch. And if people don't switch from your products and they buy new ones every two or three years, I mean, you have a fantastic business, especially when you're the price leader and the leader in margins and so on. So for me, this was a wake-up, but I I didn't have any problems. And I I understand that this is very, very different between different investors. I mean, lots of people in Sweden are very, very interested in those stable, dividend aristocrats and so on. they make jokes about the valuation of digital companies, of which we, as I said, have lots and lots of today in Sweden, but also in other countries. But I think if your assumption is that anything above PE of 15 or 20 is expensive and you should stay away and so on, I mean, you're really missing out because the action is in the digital part of the economy because more or less everything, not everything, of course. I mean, food won't go digital, but most of the different sectors of the economy are going digital since the last 10 or 20 years. And it's it's not slowing down. It won't slow down. And that doesn't mean that everything will go digital. People will still want to go to shops and so on. But you can see, for example, where H&M took over the throne after Ericsson in the Swedish stock market in the early 2000s. It's quite interesting, really, because they were very, very early. It was around the turn of the century. They started trying to sell online and put lots and lots, lot like many companies, they put lots and lots of money in this, and they lost lots of money because the market wasn't ready. I mean, people didn't have uh, internet connections yet. And then the former chairman of the board and uh, CEO back then, Stefan Persson, he he famously said in the spring of 2000 that when they had lost lots of money, that we're going to let go of all these online initiatives that we have. And we want to instead put our emphasis on our core business. And that, of course, was a gigantic mistake. They should have continued doing this, continued losing money until 
and built up digital distribution and been one of the pioneers in this field. And then H&M wouldn't have had the huge problems they've had in the last 10 years because they they would have been seen as the, the company to go to if you want to buy clothes online. Instead, they were the company that was reluctantly changing its business model from building new shops, like hundreds of new stores every year, to a, a company that's quick and easy to buy online from. That's what happens when you're too late into the game. Magnus, one of my favorite of your essays is the one about the two college students, one who goes into business building squash courts and the other who starts a software company for squash court booking. When did you have that light bulb moment? I know you're not a numbers guy. You, you just said it. But when did you have that light bulb moment that digital businesses could just be so much more powerful and so much more profitable? I don't think I had there was a realization one day just like that. But I started thinking about it a few years back and I saw these differences. And I think it's a great advantage if you're an investor and you have worked in companies that have a warehouse that buys physical goods from their suppliers and have to sell this and ship this to their customers and get them back in in returns and repackage them and send them out and so on. Because my first job was in Germany with a poster company called Scandicorp. And we were basically in three products. It was posters, art prints, and these photo tapestries. I don't know, I can't remember what they called it in English anymore. But we had lots of warehouses and we had lots of issues all the time. And I was in the middle of this trying to get the transportation from the printers in South of Europe coming up to Germany and air warehouses in Germany and in France mainly, and then get them to be processed there, packaged and sent to all the stores that were selling these posters. And I think it was realizing how much the world has changed. Nowadays, if you buy a poster, for example, you can just go to the print shop and they have a catalog of a billion <laughs> pictures and you can choose your size, you can choose any picture really. Yeah, what they do, they just print it in a very, very expensive machine and it, it looks exactly as it looked when professional printers had printed them in the print shop 20 years ago. But you just have to stand there for a quarter of an hour when they print this and put it into a frame and it looks great. I mean, this is so completely different as compared to what it used to be. I mean, posters and art prints, that wasn't a very good business because you had to guess or make estimates what the people would be buying and they weren't buying all the, the things that you wanted them to buy. There came lots of movies and things started selling very, very well and then all of a sudden it came a new movie and nobody wanted to buy the Titanic poster any longer or the Teletubbies or the... Yeah, whatnot. And we lost so much money in old stock because it was worthless it went from you know, in a couple of weeks it went from very hot to completely you know, worthless i mean you can't convince someone to buy ten thousand posters for reselling of something that uh, the kids don't like anymore and i mean when you realize how much the world has changed and especially if you're a middleman here for example it was obvious to me early on that the services part of Apple would grow very, very much. And this is very, very digital. And most interesting, of course, is the App Store, because they, they take basically, as you know, a 30% cut of all the sales in the App Store. There is a part, there is some curation, and they have to have the servers running and everything like that. They have to have the payment methods, and so on. But apart from that, I mean, the top line gets to be the bottom line, basically. I mean, it's just pure profit. And if you have a growth business that works this way, as my example there was, uh, <laughs> I could perhaps explain it a little bit, there was two students who knew each other were living in the same dormitory at the university, and one of them was very much into the paddle craze that's everywhere in Sweden and Europe today, and he wanted to build 
a paddle center. And uh, that, of course, is very, very capital intensive and it doesn't scale very well. You have to just, if you want to expand, you have to rent another location and you, build, you have to build all these paddle fields and so on. But his friend on the other side, he, he felt that, well, I can cash in on this, I think. I could make a software with paddle centers instead could uh, put up the time slots where people can come and play and you can just, I can just have a management of the payments and everything. And this is exactly what what lots of companies like Hotel.com and all the others have been doing. They just make a system that works and they advertise a lot for this and they get market dominance and all of a sudden they are scaling like hell and they're making money like hell. And this is, of course, completely, completely different as compared to having to work in the physical world where you have to just, if you want to expand, you need a new warehouse, you need a new trucks, you need more supply of goods, you get uh, more issues with quality, you get uh, lots and lots of returns and so on. I mean, it's completely different to work with uh, digital products and services. And I think it was a slow revelation, but I think it helps because I've, I've noticed discussing with other analysts who started directly after college or university, they started uh, working in the bank and so on. And of course, they un- they understand these things, but they haven't lived in it. And for me, it was a very good thing to have seen it up front. I mean, how difficult it is to be into the goods business, so to speak, with physical goods as compared to all the things that, uh, I mean, for example, Netflix. Look at their business. They started as a movie rental company where people were renting movies or they had this deal that you could have a movie and then you sent a DVD then and you sent it back and then you got another one from your list. I mean, they were the biggest customer of the U.S. Postal Service for several years. And they were sending just billions and billions of DVDs around the country. Of course, they didn't make lots of money. <laughs> they lost, first of all, lots of money. I don't know if they ever turned a real profit from doing this because there was so much handling and so much logistics and postage to pay. And then they switched over to the streaming service, and we all know what happened then. It was, of course, not immediately profitable because they were growing so so rapidly, but eventually it started to get profitable and will just, I think, continue on that road because they have the dominance and they have a completely digital business model where a new customer basically doesn't cost anything because there's just a little processing of the payment, but otherwise it's completely for free. Back in their own business model, every customer was... It costs like the other customers because you had to send them uh, DVDs back and forth all the time. And now instead, it's just someone else that's connecting to the service. Let's go back to Sweden for a minute. The first time we talked, I asked you, why is it that Sweden has so many digital companies? And you told me about a policy that the government launched, I think in the 80s or the 90s, to put a PC in every home. Can you tell us about that again and how you think that shape the evolution of Sweden and its economy? Yeah, I think I think that there were two things because it was interesting to see. We had the television here in Sweden a few weeks back. There was a very, very good documentary about the gaming industry in Sweden, especially the gaming industry. And if we, if we start in the gaming industry, there were two things that happened. And the first one wasn't this PC reform. The first thing that happened was that we had lots of politicians in the 70s and early 80s in Sweden that wanted to forbid lots of things that they felt were bad for the kids. <laughs> and especially they, they were very much against violence in the movies. So that was a big thing that uh, people shouldn't be able to rent uh, violent movies or kids shouldn't be able to see them. But they also, it just sounds crazy nowadays, but they also reacted against uh, arcades, gaming arcades. Though there was a, uh, there was a man who, who was uh, a member of parliament who had this as his pet project to stop these video arcades. And he succeeded. It's, it's unbelievably, really. Uh, he succeeded in shutting down the video game arcades. So all the kids that had been playing there for their allowance all of a sudden didn't have anywhere to go. And... Mm-hmm. This started a bit of a underground movement with lots of kids starting to try and make games for their Amigas and other gaming consoles that they had. And some of them were 
quite successful. I mean, they didn't have the distribution that you have nowadays, but they were sending out the diskettes to to other people. And when they grew up, of course, they they say, I I want to work with my hobby here. I want to continue doing this because I think it's great fun. And that was the first thing that really influenced the, the gaming industry in Sweden, that you had lots and lots of boys predominantly sitting at home making very, very simple video games. But that led then, of course, to Minecraft and the Candy Crush and all those Swedish hits that you had many, many, many years later. And uh, uh, the second, as you, as you mentioned, was this reform that came in the 90s. The government was social democratic back then, and they were contacted by the unions. They were afraid that only white-collar people and people with money would be able to own PCs and the manual workers would be left out here because they wouldn't have the money to buy. I mean, of course, back then a PC was very, very expensive to have and they wanted the government to do something there and get a system where you could basically rent a PC with the things that you need around it very, very tax-beneficially from your employer and this was, yeah, they started this and they, <laughs> it was a bit funny because they didn't put any real limits on this. So, of course, all the, the PC companies of the world wanted to be in on this and they managed, of course, to get people to rent, I mean, unbelievably expensive gaming PCs under the pretext that you could use Word and Excel and do your, your kids could do you their homework here, yeah, something like that. But I mean, I remember my father got this. He wasn't the only one, but everybody. It was a very, very, very big thing. This, and I just look at it because he wanted my advice on this. And I just look at the equipment. It was absolutely crazy. I mean, there were computers that cost, if you put it in U.S. dollars, perhaps four thousand or five thousand dollars. And then you you were going to rent these for. I mean, basically, you would be paying half of this cost over a three-year period after taxes. And basically, you could get it for free or just pay a nominal amount afterwards. But this meant that we went from just having a few percentage points of the population owning a PC in just two or three years. You had like 80-90% of families in Sweden having a PC. And that was a huge shift. I mean, we're talking now early, mid-1990s. I mean, this... It was completely different compared to any other countries. I remember still when I worked at Hewlett Packard here in Sweden in the, uh, what was that, 2001, um, five years uh, after that. And Sweden, compared to its size in the European market, we were like uh, 10 times our size when it came to PC purchases from Hewlett Packard as compared to another country with the same size. And this meant that there were lots of boys sitting at home. All of a sudden, they had a very powerful PC sitting there. And then, of course, they could make games. But they also started experimenting with computer programming. And this was very, very popular. Lots of people wanted to read uh, programming instead of uh, French or German in school and high school. And there was a huge movement, you could say. Huge interest started in this. And there you have all these guys like Niklas Sandström with Skype and uh, the others that when they are interviewed later on now, they, they can tell you, oh, we got this, com- we got this uh, fantastic computer into the house one evening and all of a sudden we could do all those cool things and they could also, I mean, this was at the same time the internet revolution started to pick up pace there and Sweden went from just, I mean, a few university students sitting online to uh, more or less every family having an online connection in just a few years. So this also played its part. It was this piece reform was very much criticized because it cost so much money and it basically moved money from the government into these suppliers of the PCs and so on. But in the long run, of course, it was a huge success because we got all those people forming their companies. And now when you look in Stockholm, I mean, we have everywhere you see the Spotify and all the gaming companies and everything. There are just tens of thousands of people making lots of money and paying, of course, lots of taxes back here. So, I mean, it's been a huge success for the Swedish economy. 
Absolutely. It's an incredible accident of history. But as you say, in the long run, it's been so beneficial. And I've heard, for example, that Stockholm has more developers per capita than nurses and doctors, for example, which is yeah, quite I'm sure, amazing. I'm sure they have. It's very, very common nowadays when you talk to people that uh, they say they are in uh, young games development or software development and so on in Stockholm. It's very different as compared to what it used to be like 10 or 20 years ago. Magnus, I'd, I'd like to know more about what you look for in investments and how you find them and how you go about, as you put it, discovering the soul of a company. So let's talk about evolution and try to draw out some of the themes there. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you found evolution and how you went about researching it? I found it because I got a tip there from another investor that's been very successful and this was in 2017. And yeah, it just started there because the company back then was not well known at all. I mean, nobody had heard about it. It was small, uh, valued perhaps at uh, five, six, seven billion Swedish kroner or one billion dollar or something like that. And uh, I started looking at it and I also liked when I used to play on football and I mean like 20 years ago all those first digital gaming companies came and you could instead of going to a shop you could place a bet on your computers I, I was they they also started to get some very very simple casino games and evolution perhaps we should point out I'm sure not everybody has heard about it is the global leader in live casino which is basically that instead of having an RNG game when you play casino for money online you have a live dealer sitting there getting filmed from different angles and hundreds or if not thousands of people are betting on the game so it's riding high on the switch from physical to online gaming which has been going on in Europe for the last 20 years, but is only starting to happen really in Asia, Africa, South America, North America. But in Europe, we were very, very early in this. And in the beginning, of course, like 15 years ago, evolution was only in Europe, in Scandinavia, in Germany, England, but basically that was it. But they had lots of competitors. They are, they are not the first movers here at all. They had lots of competitors, but they have executed far better than the competitors. So they have gone from being just one among 10 companies to being the global leader. I mean, like almost 10 times bigger than their closest competitor when it comes to live casino. And now they have branched out a little bit into slots and RNG games as well. But I, I just love the business model because it is very, very digital. Of course, you have to have the studios, which are run like regular casinos, where you have the dealers sitting in front of cameras. And you have to have lots of young, beautiful people sitting there get, being trained, of course. You have to have all the systems in place. You have to make sure people are not cheating in any way. You have to keep track of every game, which adds up to billions every month now nowadays every every time someone places a bet in blackjack or roulette or baccarat uh, especially in asia of course it's baccarat and you have to have all those physical things working of course but after that it's completely digital it is it works pretty much like netflix that you stream out the games to the operators and uh, they had their customers coming into their sites and playing the games. And it's enormously scalable, of course. And this is for the reason that all games except Blackjack, you can have basically as many players as you like on the table. It's not perhaps as many because it would, it would start lagging and so on if you had too many. But it's very, very scalable. So you can basically have one person sitting there spinning a roulette or having a baccarat table. The cost for the company is the same if you have nobody or one person playing it or if you have 1,800 people uh, playing it. So, I mean, you, you could, as, as I mentioned before, you, mean, you, can, you can very easily compare it to the physical equivalent, which are, of course, the, the casinos of the world where you can't have that many people uh, on table. It's, it's just uh, physically not possible. You can only, I mean, it, it would be very nice if you had 20 people around a small table and then, oh, there comes another 10 people who wants to get in here. I mean, 
it doesn't work. But if you have the online business model, of course, it works very, very well. And uh, I was very interested in this, and especially when I started looking at it. And this is my process as you, that you asked for, that, of course, look at the numbers, try to figure out what this scalability can do with it, and take into account that you have to buy or you have to start new studios in new countries and so on. But the most revealing for me was the two times that I visited the sites, first of all in Riga, where they have, I don't think it's the biggest any longer, but it used to be the biggest site, and see this up close and get it explained how it worked and see really the scale. It's like a huge casino factory that just streams 24-7 all days around the year and compare this to their competitors who were trying to get a hold on the market but were working in a much smaller scale. And this is very important because almost, or I shouldn't say almost, but lots and lots of analysts and investors in Sweden didn't understand how complicated this was to get up and running. There were ludicrous quotes there because people talk, oh, you just need a webcam and a roulette wheel and uh, some girl standing there. I mean, it was... Unbelievable. I mean, there's professional analysts talking about uh, talking about something like this without having any knowledge about the complexity of it. Um, how difficult it, w- it is to run something like that and how much knowledge you have to have, how much you have to invest in it. And most of all, invest in people. Because another Swedish company called Net Entertainment, which was bought by Evolution a year ago now, they were very, very successful in slots, digital slots. And they started to get into live casino like 10 years ago. And they didn't at all understand the complexity of it. They didn't, they, they, they admitted it later on that they didn't understand how much training uh, you had to have, find the right people. You have to train them a lot before they do anything. And you have to have all the systems around it so people don't cheat and so on. And the cost of this is very, very high. But the pleasant part of it is that once you have covered with the commission that you get from basically the losses that the player incur, once this commission that you get covers the cost, the fixed costs that you have for wages and equipment and studios and rents and everything, once they do that, it's almost pure profit. And this is just a fantastic thing, which they have in common, of course, with lots of other digital businesses. but. When you have the best product and you have the transition from all over the world, from physical to online, and you are basically the online casino of the world, and it's almost pure profit before taxes after a certain level, then you can understand the fantastic financials about evolution. You can understand that this isn't something that is going away. You don't have this competence or these games and this development and this investment into the business among the small competitors at all. And nowadays, no one, I think, is saying that this is an easy business to replicate, but with that different valuation of the company. But still, they are questioned. Now they're going into the American market since a couple of years, and they are completely alone so far in this market when it comes to live casino. And there, of course, they are being questioned there also. Will they stand up against the new competition, new American companies and so on? But, I mean, they've been there like you know, three years and they're still alone in this market. So I know you went to the ICE conference in London, I think, and you, you go there to try to get a feel for what games are coming out and you try to meet a lot of people. Is it important for you to, to gather scuttlebutt and to talk to as many people as you can to flesh out your investment thesis? Yeah, I think, I think it's, it's very, very important to do that when you have the possibility. I mean, you can't do that with all companies, so you have to start traveling the, the, the whole world. But going to the biggest fair for this casino, the casino business as a whole, that was also very, very... Of course, last year they had to cancel it because of COVID, but yeah. Next time, of course, I'm going in spring now, and I think I think that that is very very important, and especially when you ha- when you want to look at the competitors and talk to them, and of course you can go a little bit undercover there. They 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 don't know who you are if you're an investor or what you're doing. I mean, you can just go around there, talk to them, and see oh well, what news do have you planned or how do you see 
but I mean, evolution is that, is they, are they a threat for you and so on? And you get to, I mean, you have the possibility to talk to people. And when you look at someone, you, you see their reactions and so on, they can tell you a lot. I mean, you could, you could mm-hmm. see that, I mean, you have this enormous installation that evolution has and these unbelievable games. If we talk about ICE 2019, the unbelievable games they were presenting there and so on. Just compare that to Playtech and Pragmatic Play and the others. I mean, you realize that these are completely different worlds. I mean, the competitors are basically imitating or copying the evolution games that came out one or two years ago. And of course, they have the possibility to, to get some business out of that. But I mean, in almost other businesses that you look at, you have five or ten evil competitors that are very, very competent and they are perhaps bigger than the company that you own and so on. I mean, this has been the case most of the time for me, but I have learned the hard way always to try to find the leader there. That hasn't always been the, the leader in revenue. I mean, Apple, for example, don't sell the most phones or the most computers and so on, but they are selling the most expensive, the ones with the highest margin and so on. And that makes Apple a much safer bet than their competitors. And the same thing goes for Netflix. They are the global leader in this. And uh, Evolution is the global leader when it comes to this. And I mean, when you, when you think about the portfolio, any companies you should and so on. And I, I'm, of course, very much for having few but big bets when it comes to investing. And you can sleep much better and relax much more if you are sure that this is the leader that you have bought. And I think that that cannot be exaggerated, the importance of finding these companies, because it's so much easier to hold on. I mean, there are lots of companies that have lost their lead and so on. But if you look at the big fan companies and so on, they have been pretty stable for pretty long. And if you find that kind of company like Google or Apple and Microsoft, and uh, of course, we're talking about here about smaller companies, but the same idea that you find the leader there, you can realize that it's much more difficult to come in from under these companies and try to get business there when you have a situation where the market leader is operating on a gigantic scale and with a scalable business because you have only losses all the time and they have lots and lots of profits from which they can invest and from which they can basically kill you. And uh, I think this is very, very fundamental. There's so many investors that, oh, look at this new upcoming uh, company here. I mean, there was just, I think it was yesterday I heard about some company where the CEO was going to be interviewed in a pod or had been interviewed now. And he said, that, oh, we're going to challenge evolution for the market leadership from basically nothing. I mean, good luck, good luck. And I mean, lots and lots of investors are saying that, Oh, uh, this is so interesting. Okay, there's more. They have losses right now, but think about it. If they, yeah, sure. I mean, <laughs> sometimes it happens, but it happens very often when you have a change in the dynamics or the fundamentals of a business. I mean, we, we could see that when the typewriters were replaced by the PCs and so on, and you had the cameras were replaced by digital cameras, and the digital cameras were replaced by smartphones i mean you have completely new technology and in those cases you you can have completely new market leaders and all those this, this the disruption theory and so on but when you just have a business that's going to continue pretty much as it is for the foreseeable future it's difficult to come up and challenge the leader very very difficult and i think lots of people are losing money very unnecessarily on taking bets on these small companies that don't really have anything special apart from a CEO with lots of ego. (laughs) Well, I get that, Magnus, but how do you handicap the changes that are happening around the company? I mean, for example, regulation in Malta or changing regulation in Europe with regards to gambling. Or how about industry consolidation with some of Evolution's major customers trying to move up the tech stack? How do you think about those things? Yeah, regulation, of course, is the biggest threat to the business. I mean, it doesn't matter what company you have. If you have extreme regulation, which is more or less killing off possibilities of making money, 
I mean, it's just like with the banks. If you have too much regulation, you can't make any money, really. It's very, very difficult. But you have to look at it on a global scale. And yes, there are new initiatives in some European countries. In Sweden, for example, we had a special regulation when COVID came to stop people sitting and losing all their money and so on. It's a temporary regulation, but uh, they don't seem to be too willing to go back to normal there from the government. But you have to look at it on a global scale. And I can't see any reason to fear that there would be a global initiative or an EU-wide even initiative to put in new regulations, because this is a matter for each country. And in America, it's a matter for each state in America how they want to tackle this. And it's so difficult just to get new regulation in place in a single country because all the politicians want different things. Some of them want to have everything free and some of them want to get away with this. And on a global scale, this is not going to happen, basically. If you just look at the Asian market, which is by far the biggest market in the world and is growing much quicker than any other market. And you have all the way from mainland China, where it's completely forbidden to play whatsoever. And they put in all kinds of obstacles for people to try and get online and play to lots of other countries where there is no regulation and there might even be a law against it, but the government doesn't do anything. They say, oh yeah, what can we do? It's online and so on. And then you have some countries where you have some regulation. So as a total, it's not very highly regulated, really, when you look at it. And I, I can't really see that this is going to change, that you have lots and lots of countries going into regulation. And also, I mean, many regulated markets are very, very good. I mean, the American market is, of course, extremely regulated, where you have the states stopping anyone from playing in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. It's just started now in America, but you have the states very much stopping people from out of state to to gamble at all in their in their constituencies, and you have lots and lots of rules that have to be followed. But if you are the big company with lots of money and resources and knowledge and so on, you can handle this. So it's just just like with tobacco, of course. There were, I mean, there used to be a very very competitive business of tobacco. I mean, all those. I mean, if you go back 20, 30, 40 years, and all these cigarette manufacturers were competing like hell. I mean, you could see just the the amounts they had to pay for all their advertising and. It's, I mean, they had to differentiate and try to convince people we have the best taste and so on. Then all of a sudden, this was forbidden in almost all of the world, and it was very, very highly regulated market. And what happened? Well, you had this uh, J.C. Reynolds and um, the Marlboro and a few others taking the whole market and uh, making lots and lots of money because they, did, they can't advertise, and people still smoke. Uh, fewer people now, of course, but you, you get a situation which is very, very good for the market leaders. And this is also the case in America. I mean, as I said, evolution has taken the whole market now since states started legalizing online gambling. Before yeah, before it was only in New Jersey, it was very, very small business as, as a whole. But then you have someone coming in, uh, building their studios in each state, uh, signing up all the casino companies as customers and getting all the market and then someone else like Playtech now they say they're going to go into Michigan and so yes but starting from scratch there where someone has already taken the market and with all the enormous costs how, how, how could you make money there I, I can't really see any any possibility for them to make any money as the underdog in a so highly regulated market like the different American states I, I, I really can't see it I mean I may be wrong but I mean it, it must be very, very difficult to make money when you have that situation. So, I mean, it, it's a double-edged sword there that regulation can be bad, but it can also be very, very good for the market leader in the online casino. Absolutely. And that is also the reason for the consolidation there, because size matters here. It matters a lot. And, of course, it could be it could be bad if it's too much consolidation. So, the customers, of course, get stronger in negotiations and so on. But, I mean, 
the market, the American market is going to be, I mean, America is going to, as a country, is going to be the biggest online casino country in the world one day. I mean, it, it's just obvious that they're going to be that because so many states in the next five years, so many states will regulate uh, online casino because it's uh, so profitable for them tax-wise. I mean, if, if you don't do this, it's, it's basically because you have very strong opinions about the morality about gaming. And some, I mean, Utah and other states will never regulate because they are very firm in their beliefs. But other states will not sit by and just look at their neighbors making billions of dollars in tax revenue from online gambling. I mean, I, I can't see that happening. So it, it will happen. It's it started to happen and it will just continue. And yeah, that, that will be very, very profitable. Let, let's go back to the soul of the company for a second. You've shared some great anecdotes with me in the past about the people at Evolution, like Martin Karlsruhe and Todd Haushalter. How would you describe Evolution's culture? It's extremely competitive. Uh, they, they, are, they are the kind of company like, like Apple that doesn't sit on the lures at all. I mean, they, they just, they are completely paranoid all the time, looking out into the world, seeing what's happening looking at everything as a threat and searching for the opportunities and working long hours uh, doing this. And they have just continued doing this. I mean, they make so much money today, but uh, there is no change in the way they work whatsoever. I, and if nothing that I can detect when I talk to them and so on, I, I can't see any, any change at all. I mean, it, it's the kind of culture that you have in some companies that... You, you, you should never rest, really. You should just continue. When you have the release of your new games, you, you should have already next year's game in well into uh, production. And I mean, that, that, kind of, that kind of thing. I mean, you can hear about Apple, for example, how long they work in advance with the new iPhones. They have the next iPhone already planned. They have the next iPad already planned when they, when they show us this year's version and so on. And this is very much, and you, you can feel that when you talk to them, you can, you can feel that when you, when you look at what they're doing and how much they are accomplishing and so on. And they have such a head start compared to many others of the companies now going into the business because since they have been doing this for so long, for example, a big thing for them has been to start new studios all over the world, mostly in Europe, of course, but now in North America and going into South America and so on. And they have always said that our last studio must be our best studio ever. And if you have this goal and you deliver on this goal and you have all the, the knowledge and so on in the company, you, you have the, the possibility to do this. But it's easy for any company to start, oh, well, this is good enough. I mean, that's that's been the demise of so many companies that when people start, oh, I'm making so much money now, my options are looking very, very well, and yeah, I can take more vacation now. I mean, we, we have the secret sauce now, the customers love us, and then all of a sudden there comes someone else with a new idea, a new concept, and they're taking away all the money and all the customers and so on. But I, I can't see this in evolution. It's uh, You should look, I mean, if you, anyone who's interested in the company should look at the presentations that their product manager, Todd Haushalter, has made in different interviews and so on. He's a very, very interesting guy. I mean, very, 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 very interesting to meet, but it's also interesting to listen to him on YouTube and so on and his ideas around gaming and making the experience more and more social, more and more fun. It should creating games that basically should be fun just watching other people, which which is happening now on Twitch and uh, YouTube and so on. Lots and lots of people are just sitting watching other people uh, gamble because the games are so fun. I mean, we're not talking about basically roulette and those kinds of games, but those game show type of games that they have now that are just, yeah, a show, really very much a show that you can sit and watch just for the fun of it because it's so much so many things happening and so on. But I recommend anyone who is interested in this, not absolutely not just look at the numbers, even though they are extremely impressive. Uh, you should look at presentations they have made. You should look at the interviews with Todd Haushalter and so on and see if you like it because it tells you this, the story, really what's happening behind the curtains very, very well. Fantastic. And I, I, I second that. Todd's interviews are really special. Magnus, you, you mentioned that when you think about 
portfolio construction, you like to make big bets with certain ideas. What does it take to get you to change your mind? Yeah, well, ba- basically, when, when the thesis doesn't, doesn't seem to hold up any longer, if I were to see that some competitor to evolution was, in fact, making the better games now and getting all the buzz, I mean, we're not there at all. But, I mean, for example, if you could see that, I, I think you have to challenge your the thesis that you have. If your reason for holding a stock is that they are better than their, their com- competitors, you should really have the focus on this. And don't be afraid to back away because so many investors I have seen and I have done it myself also have continued all the way down with their stock because they think, oh, price again, this will change now. I mean, I, I like what uh, the CEO said uh, last quarter presentation and so on. I mean, there are so many companies that start to decline and you have all this talk from management that this is only temporary and so on. But you shouldn't be afraid to realize that you are wrong or you have been wrong. Because if you do that, you I'm sure you will lose money. But I, I think this was George Soros who said that it doesn't matter if how many times you're right and how many times you're wrong. What matters is how much money you make when you're right and how how much you lose when you are wrong. Because if you're going to lose 90% when you're wrong, I mean, then you have a lot to make up for with your good cases. If you're losing 20% instead, it's, yeah, you could just go on, uh, <laughs> go on, on the good companies. <laughs> As I said, if your thesis don't really seem to hold any longer, you should just go away. And don't, don't listen to any explanations. I mean, there might be a chart around that those things happen, but I think it's better to just cut and run a bit there. And if, if there is a turnaround and you still know the company very, very well, you could go in later on. I mean, certainly you, you won't be the last to buy the company at that time. But yeah, I think you shouldn't be afraid to change your mind. Cool. I, I fully agree with that advice. Why don't you tell us quickly about Herno Gin? And your journey to the end of Sweden to find this uh, small little distillery. Hanujen uh, is a small gin distillery in the north of Sweden, in a very, very nice location where they use their own water wells, of course, and what nature can give them. And I got to hear about them from a friend who, who is very interested in gin because he had heard about this company in London without them knowing that he was Swedish because they had won so many prizes. And they are now the most decorated gin distillery in the world. And they are also present in Hong Kong, I know, in some uh, (laughs) exclusive bars there. But uh, they have grown very, very nicely uh, in the last five years in this ultra-high-end gin category where they work. And their product is, and this is the most important thing, of course, their product is very, very good. It's very, very good gin. And they have a very nice culture in this little company where the founder who started this on the farm that he and his wife live on. And now it's, uh, of course, <laughs> they have sold off the, the land where it is, so they keep, <laughs> keep it separate, of course. But it's been very, very interesting. I've been there twice, and I met them in other occasions and so on. I think it's, it's, it's very, very nice, very small, still, unfortunately, unlisted company. So when you buy stocks, you have to make a private arrangements, like when you buy a car or something like that. But they are, I think, on their way to list the company. So if anyone is interested, there might be the opportunity to, to buy on the stock exchange one day now. But now it's, it's great fun, really. And they started a bar on their own now in Stockholm a few weeks back. And it's been a huge success also in a very trendy part of Stockholm. And it's, it's, it's not been a big investment of mine, but it's been great fun to follow them. And now when they are going very, very strongly out of the COVID crisis and growing very well, it's been even more fun to, to be part of the journey in some way there. That's awesome. Okay, Magnus. Well, I know you're world famous on Twitter, but why don't you just remind us of your handle and how people can get in touch with you? Yeah, my handle is at Lou, L-O-U, underscore Mannheim, M-A-N-N-H-I-E-I-M, like like the city. It's a character from Wall Street. It's not very well known among the different characters in the movie, but he's basically the guy that always tells Bud Fox to look at the fundamentals and not just run for the, the latest craze. So that's why I 
10 years ago when I yeah, got into Twitter, I, I uh, stole his name. That's basically where you can find me and uh, read about. I write a lot about evolution, but I write about other companies as well. I've been very much into LVMH, the big, I mean, Louis Vuitton, Moet Tennessee uh, conglomerate in Europe, which I found also many years back and has been a very good investment. So I write about them as well and other things. But yeah, that's me. Fantastic. Okay, Magnus, well, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciated this conversation. Yeah, thank you. Very, very good opportunity to talk to you. Bad.